0: As leaders, we get the behaviors that we demonstrate and that we tolerate. And if we are tolerating toxicity, it is a poison that will spread. And you can only build a healthy culture in the face of toxicity for so long. And eventually the toxicity will take over. So again, for me, it's a both and. Focus on what's positive and possible and amplify that as much as possible. But ignore toxicity at your peril because it will take over.
1: Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose, trust and integrity. I'm your host, Tobias Sturlsson, and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. Office politics. It's a word to which I think most of us have some gut reaction probably highly negative. That was definitely true for me personally. Before, I guess it was mostly the word politics that was problematic for us, but after two years of pandemic life, it seems like many also have an equal exacerbation with the word office. Anyway, thinking about building healthy cultures, office politics was one of the things that I thought that we should avoid entirely. But then my friend Hilton Barber introduced me to Neven Postma and her fascinating Harvard Business Review article, You Can't Sit Out Office Politics. Neven makes the case that it's essentially impossible to avoid office politics. In every larger organization, there is a need to socialize and build momentum for ideas in ways that are outside of the formal process and hierarchy. It happens all the time. And this got me thinking. At heart management, we think about the heart as the inner life of an organization, which really takes place in the often informal internal experiences and conversations. It happens on coffee breaks, it happens sometimes behind closed doors. With that lens, the connection with office politics became obvious. So if we are to build and sustain a healthy culture, the goal is perhaps not so much to entirely avoid office politics, but it's a question of how we engage and what environment we create. Do we create an environment driven by a grasp for power or pride or an environment characterized by serving each other, for example? And I guess, as we've all learned, it's not the easy of either or, but we're navigating in some kind of tension and living in a hybrid work life, of course, makes this maybe even more complex. Neven Postma is the author of If You Don't Do Politics, Politics Will Do You, a guide to navigating office politics effectively and ethically. She has held various key leadership roles, including CEO of the businesswoman's Association, CEO of NOAA, Nurturing Orphans of AIDS for Humanity, and Head of Leadership and Culture for the Standard Bank Group in South Africa. Neven is a leadership culture and strategy facilitator with clients around the world. Before we jump into my conversation with Niven, I would just like to thank all of you who share this podcast, who rate and review it, and if you enjoy it, please do. It just helps us get the message out to so many more people. And I should also say that we have a number of really exciting conversations coming up, including Kim Scott from Radical Candor and Mark Mortenson, who has written and researched incredibly interesting on how we can create psychological safety in a hybrid work environment. So can't wait to share those conversations with you. But now... Without further ado, let's welcome Niven Postman. Niven, it's really a privilege to have you on the podcast today.
0: Uh, And it's my total pleasure to be here.
1: I'm so, so glad that we have our third South African guest on the podcast, which I think is actually... Quite a lot. I think we're up to 6% of our guests being South African.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're colonizing the world.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So another South African and and a shout out to you, Hilton Barber, introduced me to you. And I read your, your fascinating article in Harvard Business Review on office politics. And, and felt that I really wanted to have a conversation with you. So, But before we, we jump into this, this fascinating conversation on office politics, could you share a little bit about just your story and how you became interested in this subject?
0: Well, it's an interesting one because my first executive position was when I was 29. So I was very young uh, in a leadership position. And actually for about the next... 15, 16 years of my career, if you had asked me anything about office politics, I would have given you the most violent, visceral reaction of, oh, do me a favor. You know, I'm not interested in that stuff at all. And the kinds of things that I would have said about office politics are the kinds of things I've heard repeated back to me now over the years that I've been lecturing on the subject. And it was a, I'm too straightforward and ethical to get involved in politics, I'm just coming to work to do my job. I don't get involved in these stupid games and play dirty. I just, like I say, pitch up and do a good day's work. And so that was very much my approach for the longest time. And then a whole series of things happened. I resigned from an executive position. I had a friend who has a very successful leadership development program and company. And she asked if I could do something on office politics and, it really was a very powerful opportunity to stop and think not just about the subject and to learn more about the subject, but in so doing to also reflect on my own career. And, you know, not on the times that were wonderful and successful and that I am still proud of, but the times that were really difficult, the times where I really hit my head against a brick wall, that was never about the technical stuff. It was always about the political stuff. And so as I've, understood more about the subject as I've lectured about it, as I've started to write about it, as I've heard other people's stories. I must say a subject that I was completely not interested in has actually become rather intriguing.
1: Yeah, and thank you so much for that. And I I really think it is an intriguing subject. Uh, On on this podcast, we focus a lot on how to build more healthy cultures. And as I've been writing and, and working on culture I've thought a lot about how our kind of internal informal conversations and experiences shape culture I think Boris Professor Boris Grusberg uh, called it the organizational conversation and, and I think that there's just so much that is actually happening within those informal conversations that over time will shape will will kind of lead to shared assumptions shared beliefs shared values and and that will in 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 turn, Create norms and and so on and and I and I see a connection here with office politics because I guess it has to do a lot with those kind of in, in, informal conversations and that that we we sometimes talk uh, about the heart of an organization that is kind of its inner life and 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 I guess it's it's so important to to actually be very clear on what that looks like and what do those processes look like and, and so on. And I think that's why I, I really wanted to talk to you about Office politics, but I guess uh, as soon as, of course, we we say the word, and, and you've already alluded to it, that it is something. And I, I guess whenever we use politics in in anything, I, I guess that has a certain uh, gut reaction for many of us. And I guess today, after uh, a lot of people wanting to to work from home, even the word office has a gut reaction as well. So 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 not the best combination. But how would you define office politics?
0: In a in, in a nutshell. For me and for a number of thinkers who are grappling with the subject, it's really about the informal, the unofficial, the sometimes behind the scenes things that go on in all organizations. And, And those things are about selling ideas, they're about increasing power, they're about accessing information, they're about sharing information, they're about building relationships and brands you know the metaphor that I use often is really choosing not to get involved in that informal reality of organizations is entirely people's choice. Life is hopefully a series of choices. but really making that choice not to get involved is is quite a risk and it's, in my opinion a mistake because it's essentially like you're playing soccer on half the field, okay because, especially in highly politicized organizations, the informal, the unofficial space, where relationships get built, where power gets accrued, where um, branding and perceptions happen. In in highly politicized organizations, that is actually even more than half of the soccer field. That's where a lot of the stuff happens. And so, of course, the reality of organizations is the organogram and the governance structures and the delegations of authority. But that's not the whole reality of organizations or of human behavior. And so to tar the entire realm of the informal and unofficial with this brush of negative and toxic and Machiavellian is is really a risk. Because, of course, that's part of it, but it's not the whole story
1: and i i really want to to dig into that those differences but 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 let's say you 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 still said now that that it is possible to say okay i'm 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 avoiding this i'm i'm not going to be a part of it and i i'm just thinking is is that a possibility
0: well interestingly i suppose there's two answers to that often in lectures and workshops that i have with delegates when i actually explain to them this realm and scope of informal and unofficial the light bulb goes on for a lot of them. And they said, Oh, you know, actually I have been doing that. I have been socializing my ideas. I have been lobbying for support. I just never called it politics. Cause of course politics was only this revolting thing and I'm not revolting. So I couldn't be doing politics. And so I think a lot of us are engaging in it to get skilled in it because it makes such a difference. And I think the second thing is certainly it's at more junior levels if you're a highly specialized person, you probably can get away with simply pitching up and doing your job, input, output, clocking in, clocking out. But particularly the more senior you get, where your job is no longer the technical part of the job, but it is about navigating, competing, conflicting agendas and priorities and interests. Well, then you need to start getting smart around politics because... If you are focused only on your technical skills and only on your technical output at the expense of this reality of navigating, not only you, but as many delegates have said to me, but your whole team are going to be left behind because you need people who are playing air cover for you as a team. You need people who are getting the way ready for you. And that very seldom happens in the formal, official ways. It happens. As I say, in the informal and unofficial.
1: So I think that is that is really helpful. So you you have this great quote in your book: the question is not whether organizations will have politics, but what kind of politics they will have. Politics can be energizing or debilitating, hostile or constructive, devastating or creative. And and you make a distinction, and and I think you've already talked a little bit about that between minimally politicized, moderately politicized and highly politicized organizations. So could you share a little bit about those distinctions? What what are the differences between those?
0: Yes. Well, so first of all, let me just acknowledge that neither, of, uh, neither the quote nor the framework are mine. The quote comes from Bowman and Deal in The Art of Reinventing Organizations, a really superb book published in 1997. And and this distinction between the types and degrees of politicization and organizations comes from Kathleen Kelly Reardon, who's an organizational psychologist. Now that I'm starting my own PhD, I really look forward to contributing even more to the subject beyond just my own experiences. But for the book, it was really an opportunity to synthesize information that was out there that I found valuable and interesting and wanted to share. So You know, when it comes to the reality of politics, I couldn't agree with that quote more if I tried. And so I love it. And when it comes to minimally, moderately and highly politicized organizations, the distinction is really the degree of of politicization. So in minimally politicized organizations, what you see is pretty much what you get. Yes, of course, there's some informal maneuvering. But as the name implies, it's it's relatively minimal. And so there are clear rules that people stick to. There's not a strong sense of in-groups and out-groups and so on and so forth. And that slowly then changes in highly politicized organizations with moderately politicized organizations being somewhere in the middle. And I've worked in two highly politicized organizations. And... You know, when I say that they're highly politicized, it's neither a criticism nor praise. It's just a fact. They were large 50, 60,000 people. They were old, been around for almost 100 years. They were highly matrixed. So people always had two official bosses and sometimes uh, more than just the two official. And people had been there for most of their career. And so some of the phrases that they would use is we've grown up together. We've known each other our whole lives. And those kind of deep, long-standing friendships and relationships and going back years put together with all the other things, I mean, it's going to be highly politicized. There's going to be shortcuts in terms of relationships, in terms of power, in terms of influence, in terms of perceptions that people who've been around for a long time can navigate and can use to their advantage and people coming in new, particularly at the executive level, are going to really struggle to break into.
1: So when you say that, I, I'm just thinking for an organization then, and I'm, I'm I'm thinking that perhaps also a lot of organizations in the public sector tend to be more on the highly politicized kind of scale of, of of what we're talking about here. And and I want to talk more more later about how we can make sure that that we avoid like toxic office politics, but but focusing now on 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 something that you talked about, which is the ability of of new people to kind of find their way into the organization. And I'm just thinking about if we want to build healthy cultures i think one one of the things that is really important is that we also create an an inclusive place and and a place where where people can feel safe and uh, also a a place that will really be able to draw on the experiences and ideas of, of of new people that are coming into the organization so so what is something that leaders if we think in a highly politicized organization perhaps need to think about in terms of making sure that you don't have to be there for 10 years and learning all the ins and outs to be able to to navigate successfully and, and get your ideas through?
0: I think there's a few answers to that question, Tobias. Before we even start with leaders, I think people, when they are looking at joining a new organization, really need to take into account as much as is ever possible when you're on the outside rather than the inside what do I understand of the politics in this organization? And does that match my particular skill set and appetite and stomach for politics? So, I have a friend, for example, who is currently recruiting for a very senior executive position. And her, her deciding factor is not around the salary, the stock options, the role. I mean, those are all essentially hygiene factors. Her deciding factor, is the question she's asking herself, which is, do I want to become like these people? You know, do I want to become like these people? And if the answer is no, well then, for heaven's sake, what are you doing taking on a role there? Because, in the I, you know, in the realm of culture, of course, you can affect a culture, but a culture will inevitably rub off on you. And so, I don't think we ever really stop to consider what the political dimensions of a culture are. Um, And that's probably not surprising because the whole concept of power in politics is not something that we are particularly comfortable with at any level of an organization. So Rosabeth Moss at Harvard Business School wrote in the 70s that power and politics are the last dirty secrets of organizations. They're the things that we just don't talk about. We certainly don't teach them. And then to your question, we certainly don't look for them or try to understand them when we go into cultures. And I've had plenty of executives say to me, no, 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 we don't have uh, politics in this organisation. It's all about a meritocracy. Because, again, this idea that toxic politics are the only kind of politics, that politics can only be Machiavellian and negative, is so deeply ingrained. And so what I say often is, look, Politics are not a symptom of a bad culture. They are a part of cultures. And certainly toxic politics will be the symptom of a toxic culture, but not the other way around. You know, so a good culture can absolutely foster effective, legitimate, ethical politics. And when it comes to leadership, well, isn't that the truth? That when it comes to culture in particular, leadership casts such a long shadow. And I think awareness of the challenge for new people entering in a culture is a necessary first step, but in my experience, it's not enough. Because actually, unless you want to actively change the vested interests and the status quo of the culture, where those on the inside reap the benefits and those on the outside keep hitting their head against a brick wall, it's going to become an exercise in lip service. So you're going to say all of these things, and you're going to absolutely mean it in the moment, and you're going to be terribly distressed at the turnover rates, and the lost opportunity, and the lost capacity to contribute. But you are benefiting from the system, and so to see that, and to acknowledge that, and want to dismantle that, I think takes a degree of courage and selflessness that is not all that common.
1: Sure, absolutely, and I. I'm thinking if we if we talk about this aspect of of the healthy versus the toxic, and and using the word toxic, of course it it becomes like kind of the really the really dark side in that sense. So so we could instead talk about more healthy and less healthy. and if if we would think about a culture where you have a more healthy sense of of, of politics, what, what do you think are, are some of the kind of characteristics of that for even for, for a leader, uh, HR, ethics professional to be able to think about their organization and think about uh, what, what are kind of some of the markers in one or the other direction?
0: Yeah, well, a number of things. So I think the first thing is that people are not just playing politics, not just playing in the space only for their own benefit. It is for the bigger benefit of their team and their organisation. So ideally, it's a both and rather than an either or. Secondly, I think when people are engaging in politics, even if you can't always get your own way, you're not left in a situation like you are with toxic politics, where you are left feeling abused, dismissed, belittled, humiliated. I mean, I think as, as admirable as it is to talk about healthy and more healthy and less healthy cultures. The reality is that there are toxic cultures. There are toxic leaders. And the damage that gets done is just it's just devastating, actually, and, and frankly, heartbreaking. And I mean, some of the things that I've heard in my workshops, yeah, I mean, they just take my breath away. I mean, one of the worst I ever heard was somebody saying that her first day in a culture of a, a very large organization was quite an introduction because the person said, in this place, you either pull up your socks or you pull down your pants, which I mean, it's just dreadful. And so I think we cannot not spend time and energy and effort focusing on the positive, building what's possible, amplifying what we want. But I think we do ourselves in the reality of life and the reality of damage to other people a huge disservice if we ignore the equal reality of toxicity and we allow it to continue and you know i always feel that when it comes to leadership as leaders we get the behaviors that we demonstrate and that we tolerate and if we are demonstrating toxicity well i mean that's that's just <laughs> on another level but similarly if we are tolerating toxicity it is a poison that will spread and you can only build a healthy culture in the face of toxicity for so long. And eventually the toxicity will take over. So again, for me, it's a both end. Focus on what's pos- positive and possible and amplify that as much as possible. But ignore toxicity at your peril because it will take over.
1: Definitely. And I, I was just thinking as you were talking that so many times, I think the the Hollywood movies or the TV series that, that actually that, that that a lot of us watch that they are actually showing workplaces—if we say it's lawyers or it's in the business world or it's a hospital—where where they spend basically almost all of their time in very toxic office politics, and and, and of course, and and of course, it's it, it kind of it, it kind of creates this picture of environments where where that's how you get ahead, that's how you become successful, and 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 so on, and 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 I'm thinking. What are some things that you want to say to to kind of contrast that picture?
0: Yes. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. I mean, of course, these are the things that make for good entertainment. And so in my workshops and lectures, I have clips from House of Cards, from Game of Thrones, from The Office, the are really dreadful stuff, because it's entertaining to watch. What I strongly advise people to understand, though, is to is that this single story, this Hollywood story of only the the dastardly and, and backhanded and dreadful stuff is not the whole story. And so to avoid this entire arena, because that's the only story you know, and that it scares you, it's understandable, but open your minds to the bigger story. And so interestingly, when I ask people sometimes about leaders or managers that they admire, And I asked them, what did those leaders or managers do or not do that makes you admire and respect them? A lot of it was about the kinds of things that actually are in the space of politics. So lobbying for me as my manager, giving me opportunities to succeed that weren't coming down the formal line of hierarchy, but that were heard about and made happen, sponsoring me, saying, I'm putting my neck on the line for you, and I'm giving you opportunities. These are all, as I say, things that happen in the political space. But because we admire and respect those people, we don't call it politics. And so for me, it's about understanding the power of this stuff, the importance of this informal side, and then getting more skilled about it, knowing that it's not a trade-off an either or. I can either be uh, an ethical person or I can play politics. It can be a both and in perfectly legitimate and ethical ways. As I say, not just for yourself, but for stakeholders, for your team, for people who are counting on you.
1: And I, I think what you what you talked about that is so important that it has a lot to do with the, the motivation and the drive behind it. Am I doing things only for my own benefit? And do we create the a culture where maybe we create incentives and so on that drive people to only look after themselves, to, to look after their own benefits, or are we doing something in, in the good of others and, and in the good of the, the, the shared goals that we have? And, and I'm, I'm thinking, is there an example that you have of an organization where you see, okay, this is an example of, of where politics are like played out in a really, really healthy way?
0: Yes, and one of my anchor clients, I'm loath to mention their name, is probably one of the few organizations I've ever seen where the tone is set very clearly at the top, the message is reinforced from the middle, and there's an echo that's quite resounding coming from the bottom. And I think that's a function of a number of things. One, the nature and character of, of the chairman and major shareholder Secondly, that this isn't just an afterthought for him, the culture and the values that he seeks to make happen in his company, but it's it's front and center of everything that he's done for 40 years. And so he's replicated that in the leadership team that he has. And I think third of all, frankly, the fact that he's not listed. So it's a very large company with over 700 million pounds worth of assets and income, not insignificant. But he's not listed and so he can do things that make sense to him and to his other shareholder and that are consistent with his values. He's not having to manage all kinds of competing pressures and agendas from stakeholders who may not want the same thing that he does and to whom he is beholden.
1: I think for a lot of our listeners, they they might not be the, the top executive. I think some of them are part of the management team, others are not. But they have a, a role in maybe HR or ethics or, or a, a middle management role and a question that I hear so often from especially HR leaders is how can we get our, our top management team and our board and so on to really get behind putting more focus on, on how we can build a healthy and more ethical culture. And and again I, I think this is of course in a sense a political exercise. What they need to do is is kind of work within the system and understand what is it that 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 can help us socialize these ideas. So what are some of the advice that, that you would give?
0: So I don't have a, an HR background, I have a strategy background. And so when I think about culture, when I think about power and politics, I think about it much more from a strategy point of view and a risk point of view. And interestingly, there's a very nuanced definition to risk the reality of which escapes most of us because we've never heard of it. But of course, there's a one kind of risk. So the risk that bad things will happen. And so we all want to prevent it and mitigate it and ameliorate it and control and what have you. But actually, technically, there is another whole kind of risk. And that is the risk of good things not happening. The level of disengagement that is seen in, in workplaces around the world, the level of depression and anxiety, And so there are a few ways that I always think about culture change and power and how I position those from a strategy point of view. And I suppose it starts from something I learned very early in my career, which is, look, if you want to change the strategy, change the slides, it's that easy. But if you want to change your culture, it's going to take some concerted effort. And without concerted effort, inertia will always win. And particularly if your culture is at odds with your strategy. And a strategy makes perfect sense on the slide, but the culture is going to make very sure that it doesn't happen. You're going to have to think about that as a senior exco team. You're going to have to take some uh, cognizance of that or, or choose not to and then live with the consequences. But I think particularly when it comes to regulated financial services institutions, the world over, the global financial crisis um, got regulators' attentions, because that crisis was seen to be a failure of conduct, and a failure of conduct is seen to be a failure of culture. And so certainly in the financial services institutions, and certainly from central banks, there's an awareness, this is not something peripheral. This is not something that you can just relegate or abdicate to HR. This is central to who we are and how we show up for better or for worse. And so we are going to have to give it and be seen to be giving it a whole bunch of attention because the reg- regulators are expecting it. How that then plays out in other organizations, I think is, is dependent on multiple pressures and multiple stakeholder pushes. But until then, unless you realize or are forced to realize that, as I say, this is not peripheral, this is completely central to what you will or will not be able to achieve. Well, then it's gonna be very difficult uh, for HR as a single department to try to make that happen. This really is something uh, that the CEO and Board and Exco need to understand. And, like I say, not just from a lip service level,
1: it definitely is. But I, I just wanted to think, so, as they're building that case and 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 perhaps you 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 can give an example from 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 something else where where you've seen people really, I mean using politics to their advantage in that sense to in the best interest of the organization. what are what are some of the things that might be, Important to, to think about.
0: I suppose the general rule probably applies. Because of course, look, this is always contextual and it's always specific to the organization and its history and the, the the people and the personalities. But the general rule of effectiveness when it comes to politics is, I think, one that we would all do well to apply. And it's actually the complete opposite of what we were taught as children. So I don't know about you, Tavares, but certainly my parents taught me treat others as they would want to be treated. And from a political negotiating influence point of view, that's wrong. You've actually got to treat people the way they want to be treated. So do we take the time and trouble to understand what are the pressures and priorities facing a leadership team? What does the world look like from their perspective? How can I support and assist and give you information and and access to ideas that will help you and assist you in what you're trying to achieve. And I think too many departments, and HR is no exception, are obsessed with the practice of the profession. So the lingo and the jargon and the frameworks and the best practice in my profession. And frankly, so many times, executives don't understand your profession. They do understand the challenges that they're up against. And if you can understand and help them understand how you make those challenges less, The jargon and the best practice is irrelevant. Well, then you've got an opportunity for something quite powerful to happen, an opportunity for some real conversations and business partnering, which is so many times spoken about, but very little, very few times actually practiced. Then you've got an opportunity to make that happen. And so this idea of what am I here to achieve? What is the organization here to achieve? And how do I do my job? And when I say do your job, I'm not talking about your role, because actually in organizations, we all have the same job. The job is to make that organization successful. And we forget that when we focus only on our role. I'm here purely in HR or audit or IT. And so I'm doing my part. I'm doing my role, sometimes at the expense of my job.
1: That is that is super, super helpful, Nivan And I'm thinking about, so we are still in a global pandemic and we're in in Sweden at least. Tomorrow is the day when we're actually removing all restrictions and I think we're starting to reclassify the COVID pandemic. And of course that's happening in a different pace around the world and, and there's a lot of different opinions on that so we're not going to jump into that. Of course we, we are working in a in a new environment where for many of us it's been a, a remote environment and probably for many of us it's going to be a, a bit of a hybrid environment going forward. I'm, I'm thinking about one organization that, that we've been helping and and where they've really been struggling with a very... Unhealthy and I would say highly politicized culture, where there's a lot of behavior that's been tolerated that, that has not been been okay at all, and there's been a lot of informal leadership that that shouldn't have been uh, accepted, and and so on. There there's been a lot of lack of I would say good and clear leadership within the organization. And and something where they have now had to to be working remotely is that, as, as I've been talking to people, is that it's like some of the things have been put on a pause, in a sense, that some of the drama that was going on, because they don't actually meet each other face to face, and they don't spend that much time like sitting having coffee together. It, uh, part of it is is now kind of they 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 don't in a sense, really know where they stand because because they're not in the normal environment. So so I think they're really looking towards both, I guess with dread and and maybe perhaps also with some optimism to what things will be like when they come back. But I wanted to ask you, how does this kind of hybrid environment or a remote environment impact or influence how we, Operate in terms of office politics.
0: Yes, it's interesting that uh, you give that analogy because certainly in my experience, COVID and the remote working has just amplified what was already there. Yeah. So dysfunctional, unhappy teams became more dysfunctional and unhappy. Functional, happy teams somehow managed to rally together and find a cohesiveness that was even more than they had to start off with, and I think. We certainly all at the start of this, quite frankly, understandably thought, well, you know, if nobody's going to the office, well, how do we have office politics? What a pleasure. We've got no commute. We don't have to worry about what we're wearing. We don't have to deal with all that drama. What a pleasure. But actually, my experience and all the research that's been coming out in the last little while shows that that's actually not the case. Because you can't change human nature, even in the face of something this big and, and change life-changing in so many ways. And so what we're finding is that the form of politics has changed. So people are using WhatsApp calls, they're using the chat, they're making time for some of these discussions that would normally happen quite spontaneously as people bumped into each other. The form and the nature of it has changed, but the content has not. And the need to build the relationships outside of the meeting, the need to get buy-in before the meeting, all these kinds of things still exist. And the reality is, as much as it's ever been, the same. And that's the reality that some of the most important decisions of your career are going to be made when you are not in the room. Now, that room does not have to be physical for that reality to still be the case, and it certainly is the case. And so what I would really urge people to, to understand is, that sense of relief that we all felt potentially around, oh, I don't have to play politics, actually is a misguided sense of relief. And you may well have lost out on information, support, opportunities, understanding, all kinds of things, because you you just let that go. How you get engaged in it again is of course dependent on your preferences, is dependent on the culture of the place that you're at and the team. But to not get engaged in it just because you're sitting at home in your pajamas, or in fact, especially because you're sitting at home in your pajamas, probably a big mistake.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that connects with a, with a really, I think, important thing when we think about hybrid work and, and hybrid organizations. I think when we've all been remote, when we've all been been sitting in our, in our living rooms or, or bedrooms, we've had somewhat of an equal playing field. But as we're moving towards more of a hybrid work environment, I'm thinking that it is very possible that in in some organizations that the leaders or many of, of, of the leaders feel like, okay, I need to be in place, I need to be at the office and, and at least maybe a big part of the management team. And so where we easily create a lack of equity where, where the people who are not at the office have can easily fall behind. And I'm thinking just because of office politics, just because of of that, we don't have the same natural avenues to to socialize ideas, to to push different things to the front in in the same way as the people who are actually at the office. What's your perspective on that?
0: Yeah, I think you make a very important point. There was some interesting research before COVID that said people who worked from home obviously in a very different time and way of working than what COVID um, precipitated, but that the perception that people who worked remotely and weren't in the office were less committed to their careers, were less hardworking, and all kinds of prejudices around people who couldn't be seen. As you say absolutely rightly, I think, when we were all on the same kind of level playing field, well, of course, the rules got re-engineered somewhat. But certainly there's some very interesting research that came out from Gartner late last year saying the disconnect between executives' experience of hybrid working and everyone else's Are quite marked. Executives generally have more autonomy, they have more flexibility, they have more resources to help them cope with the reality of working from home. They have more opportunity to choose to go back to the office. Not everyone has that choice and autonomy and those resources. And so I think the disconnect between executives and the us and them that this could engender in unhealthy cultures is really something that has to be thought about and thought about quite strongly. But similarly, you know, the onus on people who are not executives to recognize the risk that they run in the choice that they make in not going back to the office when everyone else is. It can't be underestimated either. And, and so, again, it's entirely your choice, but make sure that it's an informed choice around what the benefits are relative to the risks and are you happy with where this leaves you
1: and so if we think about somebody in an hr role and i think today i don't i don't know what it looks like globally but but uh, talking from a swedish context and i think uh, i guess the us as well that that there's some somewhat of of, of a shared idea that i mean we we talk about the great resignation and of course there there's i think different statistics that that either kind of prove or disprove a bit of the the validity of that but but anyway i think a lot of leaders are are concerned about making sure that we can actually keep our our talent and and we're saying that one of the main things that we need to do or a very important thing we need to do is to keep on giving people flexibility and keep on giving them the rights to work from from wherever they choose and which I think in in, in many many ways is, is a great idea but I also think that there are downsides and and I think if we, if we think about an, an HR leader or or a, any leader who want to think about how can I create equity with the people who are working remote and the people who are actually here in the office and 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 make sure that we are kind of more or, or less able in the same way to to, to push our ideas forward, to, to kind of navigate the, the, the politics in that sense?
0: I think from my side, there's a quite a profound difference between flexibility and autonomy. And I think the last two years has seen a really important shift in people who have choice. Of course, there are many people who don't have choices when it comes to their lives and their career. But those of us who have choices around it, where we work, how we work, who we work for. Flexibility is is really splashing in the shallow end. I can work here, I can work there, I can work in this office. Autonomy around how I make decisions, how I use my time, how I best apply myself. Of course, in the context of an organization that's bigger than just me. Autonomy is a much deeper thing. And I think we've actually seen a very strong Push towards this need for autonomy that, like I say, goes way beyond flexibility. And so you speak rightly about the great resignation. In fact, I wrote a LinkedIn post the other day saying, well, before any resignation, be it great or otherwise, there's a stage that precedes it, the great reevaluation, and a stage that follows it, often a great reinvention. And so this reevaluation, reinvention, both for ourselves individually in terms of what's possible and what we want in our lives and therefore what that means for organizations who are ideally wanting to have people and keep people who've asked these questions start to become quite profound. And, and, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, I think it goes way beyond just, well, you, you choose where you work. What is the nature of my work? What is the nature of the control that is being exerted over me? Not the controls that are necessary from a governance and and risk point of view. But the control, I mean, how fascinating that one of the best-selling items on Amazon last year was a mouse jiggler. Never heard of this myself. I don't know if you have, Tobias. Nope. But it's a mechanism that you put under your mouse um, to make it look like it's moving. So it looks like you're working. So if you're in a culture where they think uh, that they can control you by, by looking at how much your mouse is moving and how active you are in front of your laptop guess what? People have always gained control and they can continue to, but you try to control me in that way. You try to walk all over my basic autonomy and, and and identity as a thinking human being. Well, I can go onto Amazon and for $20 buy something that makes you think my mouse is working. And actually I'm out, I don't know, having a coffee or taking a nap. And so when you've got a culture like that of control, well, then something's fundamentally broken and and we're long past, I think, the point of return. But hopefully before we get to that point, there are informed conversations. There are opportunities to have real clarity around what matters to people and matters to them as individuals and matters to them as professionals and matters to them as contributors, hopefully to a bigger purpose in an organization that equally matters to them. And these things are not mutually exclusive if we are not taking the time and opportunity now to think about what might be possible, well, then I think the last two years have really been in vain in terms of everything that's happened.
1: So, so true. So Niven, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really, really fascinating to to talk to you. And as a last question, I just want to ask you, what are ways that people can connect with you and, and follow your work?
0: Well, I'd love... Then to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm really not active on other social media at all. But the joy for me of the last two years is quite how many conversations and networks and connections I've formed on LinkedIn. I share fairly frequently and I would love to not only have a chance to continue to share, but continue to learn from, from people in their posts. So that's the best place.
1: Thank you so much again. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the 5-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.